gospel, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 this evening. Just a portion of one long sentence again from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through to the end of the chapter. We'll just take a chunk of it this evening. One of the best, most loving, but hardest things to do for others is to pray consistently for them. Paul here tells us why he prays and he tells us what he prays for other Christians in order to teach us to pray. We have a lot to learn if you are at all like me. Let me invite you to consider Paul's words now from Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven. Your word is like honey from the honeycomb. It's uh, sweet to the taste. It revives the soul. It gives joy to the heart. It enlightens the eyes. We pray it would do all those things for us tonight and that you would exalt Jesus among us, that you would teach us to walk with him. We are desperate without you. Do that work for us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to think tonight about why Paul prays and what it is that he prays that we might learn. Why does he pray? Paul says there is a compelling reason to pray. For this reason, he says. And then he tells you how he prays. Now, I, I, I want to begin by saying this. We have all kinds of reasons we don't pray, don't we? And it's okay to admit failure here at Redeemer. We are not super Christians. I don't know a Christian who doesn't feel bad about their prayers. Who, who doesn't, uh, I don't know a Christian who, who prays as often as they want or as well as they want. We often find ourselves asking, and rightly so, for physical well-being, don't we? Either for ourselves or for someone else. Yet knowing There's much more we could pray about for others, but it just doesn't feel as urgent. There's a lot of weakness in our praying. There's a lot of ignorance in our praying. There's a lot of 
one-sidedness to our praying. And we can admit that we don't have it all together with regard to prayer because prayer is not our righteousness. Jesus is. Listen, Redeemer is a place where we can admit that as Christians, we don't talk to our Heavenly Father like children who know him very well. We can admit that. We feel like a fraud sometimes when people ask us to pray for things and it's in one ear and out the other. A week goes by and we've totally forgotten. We can confess out loud and we don't have to be defensive about it because Christ has become for us all our righteousness before God. It is not a badge of honor to be good at praying and it isn't a ladder by which we climb into the grace of God. We stand already in the grace of God in Jesus. So we can admit we're not very good at this, friends. We've got a lot to learn about prayer. We've got a long way to go, and there are lots of reasons we don't do it well. And I want to highlight some of those for you and have you think about those so that we'll better understand Paul's reasons for praying and how that can motivate. We don't pray very well, I think, some of us, because we're perfectionists. Listen, if you are trying to get your prayer perfect, your request perfect, your words perfect, or your heart in the perfect frame of mind to ask it, you will never pray because those things will never happen. We won't pray, friends, unless we're confident in the mediation of Jesus, that all our prayers to the Father ascend to the throne through the mediator, Jesus, and he makes them acceptable to the Father. Even if we have it wrong, even if we've asked for things and he's going to say no, even if our heart wasn't pure and perfect when we asked them, because all our prayers are through the mediation of Jesus, he presents us faultless before the Father and he presents our prayers faultless before the Father. Some of us struggle because we're perfectionists and we never get to doing anything unless we know we can do it perfect. But some of us are suspicious about God. We don't pray. and we don't, we don't pray because we're suspicious about God's generosity. We don't believe that he's open-handed and giving. Now listen, uh, Paul prays this prayer after the first 14 verses in which he has said, your father is the most generous father that there has ever been. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing already. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He isn't tight and he isn't miserly, but we'll never ask for things boldly and confidently if we think he is, if we're suspicious. There's a wonderful story told in the court of Alexander the Great. There was a philosopher of outstanding ability, but very little money. There have been a lot of those in the history of the world. He asked Alexander for financial help and was told to draw what? ever was needed from the imperial treasury. And when the man requested an amount equal to approximately $50,000, he was refused. The treasurer needed to verify it with Alexander before such a large sum should be authorized. And when the treasurer asked Alexander, the ruler replied, pay the money at once. This philosopher has done me a singular honor. By the largeness of his request, he shows that he understood both my wealth and my generosity. Do you believe 
that God is rich and open-handed with his gifts, you won't pray if you suspect he isn't. And and verses 3 to 14, which we've looked at for four weeks, I won't drive you through that all again. It's meant to show you that the Father has loved you and given you the Son who has loved you and redeemed you and graced you and the Spirit has come and, and sealed you and guaranteed you for God and God for you and you have everything in Jesus. All in Jesus. And that doxology of praise in the first 14 verses, what should it do? It ought to produce in us intercession. Doxology, praise, ought to lead to petition, which is what it does here for Paul. He thinks how great God is. And then he says, let's ask him to do something. And there is something deeply wrong with me, friends, and you, if the reality of God's grace and generosity does not lead us to a deep longing in our prayer life. Maybe it's because we suspect God isn't nearly as good as he is. There's another reason we don't pray well, friend. It's, it's uh, because we're just simply content. We're North Americans, most of us anyway. Live in a wealthy nation, have a nice house, got a car that works, things are going okay. And we notice it's not when the health goes sour or the economy goes bad. But otherwise, we're pretty well satisfied with the status quo. And that is such a dangerous thing here, friends. And Paul here prays for his fellow Christian believers because he knows they have needs. Maybe they don't even know they have. In Jesus, you are the most blessed person who has ever lived. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But you don't know what you have in Jesus. Look, if you think somebody who comes to Christ has all that they need in Jesus to walk with God, you are absolutely right. If you think somebody who becomes a Christian has all that they need to go to heaven in Jesus, you are absolutely right. But if you think they know all that they have, understand all that they have, appreciate all that they have, and experience all that they have to live in this life before heaven... In a way that honors God, you are completely mistaken. The old Puritans used to say, and the Puritans were good folks. Don't let the common updated history tell you otherwise. They used to say that I mean, sanctification is a wonderful thing. The process of becoming more like Jesus is a wonderful thing. But we make but very little progress in this life. Even the best of saints makes but very little progress in progress in becoming like Jesus. We have much to learn about our need and how the gospel meets it. And so he prays because Paul isn't content. Are you content? Or are you, do you have a holy discontentment? You'll pray if you have a holy dissatisfaction with the way things are in your life and in those you love. But there's a fourth and a fifth reason we don't pray, and then we'll move on. There's a fourth reason we don't pray, and it's pride. We will never pray when we're self-reliant and unwilling to depend on God for what we need. Listen, the the doctrines of Ephesians 1 have commonly been called, and somewhat pejoratively, the doctrines of Calvinism. But our church fathers tell us that all that Calvinism is, is theology 
on its knees. That's all it is, friends. If you believe God is the sovereign Lord of everything, as we've studied for four weeks, that will energize your prayers. But if you don't believe that God is the sovereign Lord of everything, why would you pray? It's just two people talking about something neither of them can do anything about. Maybe we don't pray then because we're theoretical Christians, but we're practical atheists. You know, we say we believe certain things about God, but we act like we're all alone in the universe and we've got to live it out all by ourselves. We're not humble friends. We're proud. That is so often the case in my life. How about yours? We say we believe in God, but we really live like everything is up to us. And there's a fifth reason we don't pray well friends here and it's just simply bad theology maybe we don't pray because we've drawn the wrong conclusion from God's sovereignty we fail to see that prayer is a means by which God accomplishes his purposes instead we equate God's sovereignty with fatalism que sera sera whatever will be will be It doesn't matter what I do. I can't be influential. I'm just a cog in the machine. And God is on his throne. And he's just going to do what he's going to do. And nobody can change that. But that isn't true. That's not what God tells you. What we think like, when we think like that, it's a failure to appreciate that a who and not a what is on the throne of the universe. There is not a principle on the throne of the universe just working it all out. There is a person on the throne of the universe who is a father who delights to talk to and hear from his children. Who delights when his children care about what he cares about and want to work with him in the work that he's doing. And prayer is a means to work with him to see what he wants done Done. That's James saying to you, you have not because you ask not. It's true. Paul here calls us to action then. The one who knows the end from the beginning, God himself, tells us to pray. He commands us to pray. He invites us to do it. He shows us how to do it through the apostle. And he answers prayer. And so he invites us to pray, and there are lots of reasons that we don't pray perfectionism and suspicion and contentment and pride and bad theology. But if we would see, if we would see that our prayers are made acceptable to God through Christ our mediator and not through our own perfection of praying them, and if we saw that our Father was generous and capable, and if we had a holy discontentment with the way things are. And if we saw ourselves as needy and helpless, but we saw God on the throne of the universe saying, I answer the prayers of my people, then, friends, by God's grace, we might just pray. What an invitation Paul gives us. What compelling reasons to pray, he says here. For this reason, I have heard, verse 15, of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. And what does he say about all that? He says, I don't cease to give thanks. To who? I don't cease to give thanks to God. Friends, he doesn't commend them for their faith. He doesn't thank them for believing or thank them for loving people. It's not wrong to thank people for loving people. But he thanks God that they have faith. He thanks God that they love people. Why does he do that? 
Because God did it. God brought it about. God made it happen. There are compelling reasons to pray. Now, what should we pray for when we're praying for brothers and sisters in Christ? What should Christians pray for other Christians? That's really the subject here then in the following verses. And I want to highlight four things Paul prays for them. It's really two big ideas with four things that surround it. Okay? He, he, he prays two things in order that four things would happen. He prays on the one hand that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he prays on the other hand that the, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He prays those two things, that God would do those two things. So that four things would happen. It's those four things I want you to consider tonight. In the first place, he wants us to pray. He, want, he prays so that we would know God. He prays so that we would know the hope of our calling. He prays so that we would know what are the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. And he prays so that we would know the power of God at work in our experience. Those four things in the first place. He prays that they would know God better than they do. Look at the language here. I pray, he says, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the glorious Father, that he would do what? He would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He wants you to know him. That's why the spirit needs to be given is what he's saying. All who know God need to know God better. That's just obvious, isn't it? It's the most important thing in life, however. Jeremiah said it this way, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord, who exercises loving kindness and righteousness and justice on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah says, look, don't let the rocket scientist and don't let the triathlete and and don't let... Uh, you know, the bonds trader boast in their wisdom and in their strength uh, and boast in their riches. Don't boast in any of those things. Boast in this that you understand and know me. That's the point of life. It's the most important thing. But we don't know God very well at all. Do we? Do any of us? We've made but very little Progress relationally and experientially. I'm not talking about you can pass a test about who God is, that you can define God as a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and as being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That you can define the Trinity as God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit, and work all that out, and we're not going to do that. I'm not talking about you, you know the right things about God but that you know him intimately and personally like a child knows his father. We've only just begun, but friends, if we haven't even begun, then we aren't really Christians. Jesus said, this is eternal life. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It is to know God. If you have eternal life, you have begun. If you've never begun at all, you don't yet have it. 
But how do you grow in knowing God? And Paul says, here's how you do it. It takes God to make it happen. And so he says, I'm praying that you would have the spirit or a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Some people think he just means that, that we would sort of have, you know, an internal personal sort of disposition. Uh, you know, you've got a real friendly spirit or you have a real spirit of love and generosity. And that's what he means by you would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's hard to understand how he could mean that. It's hard to understand how anybody, any human being could have a spirit of revelation apart from God. He more likely means this, that he wants you to have the Holy Spirit who gives revelation and wisdom. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of revelation. It takes, in other words, God the Spirit revealing God to you for you to know God. Because it's a complex thing to know. God is a complex person to know. It's not simple. It's not like knowing a box. Box has four sides, a top and a bottom. If it's empty, you can put stuff in it or you can put it on your head. That's what a box is. It's not very difficult. It's a little more complicated to, to understand a great piece of art. You know, a beautiful painting on a wall by a master artist. It's a little more difficult to truly understand. You're dealing with, well, the the artist himself and the the canvas and the the paints and the the brush strokes and the texture and the time period in which he lived and what he was trying to get you to feel and think by what you're seeing. It's a lot more complicated, but it's far more complicated to know a person. People, on the one hand, can hide themselves from you. They can never uncover themselves to you, so you don't really ever get to know them. I have some friends who can size people up extremely accurately in about five minutes of conversation. They seem to have this gift. And they're 95% correct. But it's that 5% that's a little bit dangerous. They've totally misread people. But for some of us, like myself, it could take 20 years to get 50% correct about what a person is really like. I have a friend who, if he sat with you for five minutes just talking about various things, he could say, this is probably how this person is struggling at home and at school. This is the way they relate to their friends, and these are probably some sin issues they have. Some people are just amazing at that. Many of us are not. We're complex people. We hide from one another. Married people don't know each other very well at all even after living together for a long time. Why? Because people are complex. We have likes and dislikes, desires. And in our case, not with God, they're changing all the time. It's hard to know a person. How difficult do you think, how complex must it be to know an infinite, eternal, and everlasting God? It's very complex. And unless he exposes himself to you in an unveiling of who he is, you'll never know him. And so Paul prays that you would have the spirit of revelation, that you would know him and the spirit of wisdom, because it takes wisdom to sort all those things out you're learning about him. Why does he think this way? Why does he react this way? Why does he do what he does? And so we need all these things because the Holy Spirit is a spotlight over our shoulder, helping us see Jesus. You know, the Spirit is given, Jesus says, in John chapter 16. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will glorify me, 
For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's the point of the Holy Spirit to point you to Jesus and help you understand him and all that you have in him. We will only know the Father of glory. and We will only know that beloved Son as the Spirit reveals him. And then he says we have a heart that needs to be enlightened. This is the second thing that he asks for. He says our heart is like a face with eyes. And he prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we can see clearly. He's speaking here, I think, of the the language in the language of the first century, uh, like in the language of that Old Testament story where the king of Syria has uh, decided that he wants to destroy the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings. And, and so he, um, he, says, he says to a servant, go and see where Elisha is that I, may, that I may send and seize him. And it was told, behold, he's in Dothan. So the king sends horses and chariots and a great army and they come by night and they surround the city of Dothan, Right. And Elisha's slave boy gets up in the morning and he finds out that the hills are surrounded by enemies. And he says to his master, we're done for. That's it. And Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And he takes the boy outside and he prays, Lord, open his eyes so that he might see. And he does see. He sees the Lord of hosts surrounding their enemies with chariots of fire. Greater is he who is with them than he who is against them. And that's, that's the point here. This is the language. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would see what? Our hope, our riches, and our power that God has given to us. Those three things. So is he praying for new spiritual blessings? No. We already have every spiritual blessing. Is he praying for a greater understanding and experience of our blessings? Absolutely. Because we don't know that we have them. There's a hilarious story about, I think it's hilarious, about William Randolph Hearst. It never set up a story that way, by the way. (laughs) No one will laugh with you. William Randolph Hearst, the the, the famous newspaper publisher, he, he, um, at one point in his life, he decided he was going to acquire all uh, these great pieces of art. He was going to spend his fortune doing it. And so he was collecting them from all over the world. He was bringing them to various warehouses that he had set up for it. And he read in his, a description about a certain piece of incredibly valuable art. And he determined to have it. And so he sends his agent out to go find it. And the guy goes all over the world searching for it to find this treasure and He comes back to William Randolph Hearst. Months and months go by. Comes back and reports, I found it. And and he says to him, where was it? He says, it was in your warehouse. You bought it years ago. But you didn't know that you had it. He was frantically searching for something he already possessed. And Paul is praying here, Lord, deliver Christians from frantically searching For something they already possess, but let them know that they possess it. 
Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God and enlighten their eyes that they would know what is the hope to which they have been called. What are the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints? What is his, the greatness of his power towards us who believe? You, you need to know, therefore, the second thing. You need to know not just not only God, but you need to know what is the hope of your calling. Hope here is not wishful thinking. We speak of hope as, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to something that's really uncertain and we don't know if we're going to get it like a Christmas wish list. That's the way we use the word hope. But hope in the Bible is about receiving certainly receiving things that have been promised to us. Why is hope so important? Because there's so much in this life to discourage us, to wear us out by what happens in this life. But hope is so vital, friends, in, in, in our relationships with one another. Think of it this way. If you were to flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 22 and following, you would see Paul tell husbands, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, to present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, that's what Jesus has promised to his church, to his bride. But no man is married to a spotless bride. But Paul would say to us, but you need to live in hope, dear brothers, of what God is certainly going to do with your bride. And love her in light of what God is going to do, not just love her for what she is now. There's a great story about... I don't know if you know this name, but there's, a, there's an old commentator uh, from hundreds of years ago named Matthew Henry. His father, Philip Henry, had fallen in love with a young lady, and she fell in love with him, but she belonged to a higher level of society than he did. And although she had become a Christian, and so those things didn't matter as much to her, her parents saw it differently. There was this great disparity in social status, and they viewed it as an obstacle to marriage. And so this man, Philip Henry, uh, her dad says to her, where has he come from? And to this question, the future Mrs. Henry replies, I do not know where he has come from, but I know where he is going. That's vital, friends, in our marriages. It will help you love somebody to remember What God is going to make of them. It will help you cheer them on toward that goal. It will help you pray towards that end. Love towards that end. It will will help you to know that one day your spouse will be so radiant in glory before the face of Christ. That if you were to see them today, you would be tempted. In the words of C.S. Lewis, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Because they'll be so glorious. Love them in prospect of that. Hope is important, friends. But we also need to know the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. He says, you are rich, but you need to discover you're rich. The Ephesians, would have this would have been vital for them. When Paul first preached the gospel in Ephesus, there were a lot of people who got converted. But there was this guy named Demetrius who had the job of making idols. Everybody's got to work. 
That's what he did. And so he had this job, and he made statues of Artemis. And he got together with his friends after all these other people got converted. He was worried about all the people becoming Christian because he was going to be out of a job. So he called a union meeting, and he realized if we don't stop people from getting converted, we're going to be out of work. So they start a riot. And they flood the Colosseum with scholars say up to 60,000 people who chant for the Apostle Paul hears about. He goes into the Colosseum because he thought it's great, wonderful opportunity to preach the gospel. And they began to chant over him for two hours straight. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the police had to secretly remove Paul's. In order to try to stop the riot. It was not. Ephesus was not an easy place. To be a Christian. Most everybody worked. For a pagan. Had friends and family who were pagan. Went to school with people who were pagan. And they, the pagans hated Jesus. And so a lot of the early Christians were hated. And they lost everything when they followed Jesus. And he says to you. I want you to remember this dear friends. That you are rich. I want you to know what are the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. I want you to know the dignity of that. You are his treasured possession. He he, uh, exalts over you with singing. But I want you to know the security of that, dear Christian friends. You're surrounded by people who are getting rich off of the worship of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 450 feet by 225 feet by 60 feet high with 127 columns. It was enormous and it dominated the religious life of the people and the social life of the people and the commercial and business life of the people. And lots of people profited, but these people had left it all behind. We know from the book of Acts that a lot of them had practiced the magic arts associated with this and that they had burned their books to get rid of the evil and to be done with it. But you can imagine the temptation when everybody else around you is rejecting Jesus. You can imagine the temptation to go back to your old life. And Paul is saying, but, but, but let me remind you, there is nothing worth going back to. Because you're rich in Christ. And finally, he reminds them of God's great power for us who believe. And that we need to know this power. And he piles up all these words. He speaks of of the, the hyperbolic, mega, dynamic, dynamite of God. The power of God that is at work in you, he says, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul would say, and I know you don't feel that. I know you, you, look, you look at your weakness internally and your propensity to stumble into sin and all the temptations that you're prone to and you feel weak. And I know that, but Paul would say this, whether you believe it or feel it, you need to know this. The power that raised Jesus from the dead has already worked in you. It brought you from death to life. And that power is still at work in you. And we need to appropriate that power. So we can be honest about our weakness. And we can say, I know I need to grow. And Paul would say, I've got great encouragement for you. Lean on the power of God at work in you. So my friends, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we, one of the most loving things we could do for one another is to pray for one another. That we would know God 
that we would know the hope of our calling and the riches of inheritance and that we would know the power of Christ at work in us. Between here and heaven, between now and then, it could be a long, hard road with a lot of suffering and many temptations and we can't withstand it on our own. But we're God's. He is ours. And we are his. We need to grow in that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that you take the weak things of the world, you you take the lowly things, the despised things, so that Christ could be exalted as a gracious Savior so that Christ could get all the honor and glory for rescuing us. We pray that you would be a Savior to us tonight, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.